Welcome to the Three Questions Podcast. We take questions from our church family and do our best to answer them from a biblical worldview. All of us here get the privilege to serve the Lord's Church locally at Southern Hills Baptist Church in Oklahoma City. Doug Melton is our lead pastor. Randy Woodall is our pastor of missions and evangelism. Jeremy Johnson is our pastor of media and community outreach. My name is Daniel Snow, and I get to be pastor of discipleship and young adults. You guys uh, send in questions week after week, and they are helpful to us, I will tell you that, and and they're helpful to other people as they get to listen and think through these things themselves and listen to conversation. You can submit questions in a couple of ways. You can you can email them to three questions podcast at myshbc.com and that's three questions podcast with the number three at the front. You can go to the website myshbc.com slash contact or you can text 505-258-2076 and the questions will always be kept anonymous. And quick question, if you filled out a bracket, how is it going in March Madness? Gonzaga. That's all I'm going to say. That's your top? I'm I'm saying it right now. Today's March 21st. (laughs) The Sweet 16 has been set. Gonzaga. Okay. Got Doug's. I'm pulling for (laughs) OCCC. That's a good call. That's a real good call. I mean... To be honest, when the Cowboys didn't get a chance to even show their stuff, I kind of lost interest. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't even feel. I truly did feel bad for. Oh, Daniel! No, I did. You did. It's true. It is. I mean, that's a terrible. It is. It's terrible. And how long did that bad feeling? (laughs) It lasted for at least two and a half seconds. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It was. Yeah. It was one of my very compassionate days. So, okay, St. Peter's, I'm not saying they're going to win it all, but fun to watch that whole thing unfold. And I'm going to keep pulling for them as long, I mean, as far as they can go. Their mascot, anyone? Nope, not no. a clue. The oh, pe- Peacocks. The Peacocks. Yeah, oh, and right. they're a 12, aren't they? Weren't they a 12? Yeah. Uh, 15, 15 or 16. 15. 15. 15. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm going to go for UNC. But go ahead. A fifteen has never made the elite eight. If I've if I read article, ain't happening this year either. Houston's going to win it all, kids. Get on that. That's what I picked. Kelvin Sampson has the best defense in the NCAA, and they will shock the world. If they don't, I will buy Doug whatever he wants from Chick Fil A. <laughs> Why only Doug? He would like to have a St. Peter's Peacocks t-shirt. I can, I can make that happen. <laughs> Those things are probably actually flying out of Amazon right now. <laughs> okay, here we go. Questions for today. The first one is, when we said the Apostles' Creed, what does it mean, quote, he descended to hell, close quote, then after three rose to heaven? Is this, is it just symbolic Jesus told the thief that he would be with him today in paradise, and Jesus Jesus wasn't a prisoner of hell. So why do we say that he, meaning Jesus, descended into hell? Boy, first of all, we need to have this discussion. It's really important now, uh, and and it's because uh, it has 
been seen in the Apostles' Creed or is right. in the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian. I, mm-hmm. I've always been not for sure how to say that. And so we do need to talk about it. There, there are allusions uh, in Scripture that would kind of start thinking that way, but that's what we're, we're trying to do today is to clarify. So, A, we really need to talk about it. Second of all, I, I would add this before we get into the answer. We want to make sure that whenever Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as first of importance, that's not mentioned. Right. 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 That Christ died on the sins according to uh, Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried according to the scripture. That he was raised on. That's that's the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to have this discussion. Mm-hmm. But boy, we always need to make sure that when Paul was giving us the essentials of the gospel, that that wasn't we don't get distracted. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. yeah. And I'd also remind people as we look at this. The Apostles' Creed is a human writing. It's not scripture. It's not divine revelation. It's a statement of faith. That's exactly right. It's a statement of faith. And so, uh, and when we look at it, and it has been adapted, amended, adjusted over centuries. And so, uh, you know, first off, I would say just remember that when we talk about it, we're not citing things that are quoting scripture. So it's, it's got some interpretation and not all biblical scholars even view the apostles creed or say the apostles creed the same way. So, yeah. so there are some differences in understanding in interpretation, but yeah. Well, and what's interesting is one of the passages that we're going to bring up here in just a moment is the first Peter three nineteen. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther in his commentary on first Peter three nineteen. He said, I've studied this and studied this, and I'm still not certain what Peter intended. Yeah. And that was That's Martin. That's a tough one. That, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a tough one. And bearing in mind that sometimes a lot of it is just the fact that Scripture's written in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, and sometimes there really is just not a great way to say it in English and make it communicate what it says in, in the other language. Okay, so... Uh, that being said, the, I mean, I know I personally, the apostles creed, every statement of it, I can fully get behind. And then there's this one that's tough, tough mm-hmm. to, to get our heads around. And that's what we want to do right now. So two main passages that we would have to look at that have to do with this. One would be in first Peter three. The other one would be in Ephesians four. Um, the, the first Peter, uh, the first Peter three passage is where it says, um, starting with verse 18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went, sorry, being made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. And so, so that's, that's when we have to deal with. Right. That's right. And, and one of the first clarifications that the three of us are wanting to make on this is, is that uh, even though, Evangelical theologians can different interpretation different differ in their interpretation. 
almost to the one, they all agree, evangelical theologians, that this is not a post-death offer of salvation. Absolutely. That, right. that for those who died, Christ went and gave them one more chance. That's not what that passage is, is teaching. That's, right. ingr- that's agreed. In fact, to really understand that passage, you need to read the verses before where Peter is, is writing to believers, and he's saying, if you suffer for doing righteous acts, that's, that's to be expected. Then he says, but Christ suffered being righteous for the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. So, he's, so this whole passage is really a contrast against we who are unrighteous, who may occasionally suffer because we try to live righteously, but look at Jesus, who was fully righteous, but suffered mm-hmm. because of our unrighteousness. You know, the just for the unjust, he said, uh, you know, died that he may bring us, uh, bring us to God. And so that's the real comparison here, is that, that Jesus really, truly did die a, a physical death. He wasn't, and remember some of the, some of the, uh, uh, heresies going around in that days were like Gnosticism and things like that that tried to say that Jesus really wasn't here physically. Yeah. He was just a, you know, he was kind like a illusion. hologram, yeah. an illusion that, that we saw. And I think what Peter's trying to say is, no, he he truly did become a man. He truly did die the righteous for the unrighteous. He truly did go into a grave and on a third day, or oh, the third day came back to life. Yeah. And, and the allusion to Noah, what he's truly saying there is just as he w- he rose again, you know, he died physically and in the spirit he rose again. In that same spirit, even back in the days of Noah, Christ, the, the God, you know, salvation was being proclaimed to those in the days of Noah, but they wouldn't listen. So, yeah. Um, and so, so with that, then let's also take a quick look over here at Ephesians chapter four and, um, it says this, uh, starting with verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women could be included there. Uh, verse nine in saying, and this is almost like a parenthetical right here in saying, quote, he ascended close quote. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so there, uh, you've got the issue of, okay, what is this talking about? He descended to the lower regions and, and I, I personally think like the ESV does a good job in this translation of saying he ascended into the lower regions, the earth. Right. And just saying that, okay, we're, we're seeing the picture here that he, yeah, he ascended. That's because he descended first. He, the incarnation happened. He did come into this world as a human, lived a human life, uh, suffered a human death. And, and experience resurrection and then ascension. And, and so, so then, okay, so then we, we deal with, okay, which I think the Apostles' Creed is trying to deal with, where did Jesus go between his burial and resurrection? And, and so that's, I think, what they're trying to get at in the Apostles' Creed. 
um, when we hear he descended to hell, the the wording of that uh, being hell is, I think, unintentionally misleading to our modern ears uh, because when we hear the word hell, we're thinking the place of torment, which is real, which the Bible absolutely talks about. Um, But I think for them, I think they're really talking about the place of the dead. Um, And Jesus uh, said that he would, and just like the question asks, Jesus said that he would be with the thief on the cross that day in paradise. And he went there, uh, he went to paradise uh, without a resurrection body, just like all believers do until the final resurrection. Now, when he came back, he he did have a resurrection body. Mm-hmm. He's the only one that has one until he comes back. But, uh, but he did go to paradise without a resurrection body, he experienced death like we experienced death. Um, and he... What what I think the early church fathers were really trying to emphasize is that Jesus really did die a human, full human death and all the implications of that. When it says he descended to the dead, I believe is what they were trying to get at. And maybe centuries later, that word that was being translated at that point, Latin to English became especially among the Catholics, became the word hell. And that's where it became misleading. Because I think the original intent was not he descended into hell, but he descended to the dead. Mm -hmm. He died. Yeah. It was a real human death. Exactly. It was a real human death. He he went through a real burial, Mm -hmm. and he truly did come, come back to life. And once he came back to life, he really did resurrect. He really did then ascend back to the Father. And so, you know, I think that's the whole purpose of, like I said, the early fathers was to was to really hit on what apparently both Paul and Peter, even in that day, had to really again try to affirm was that Jesus was God who gave up his the glory of heaven to become a man, and like later he would write, in every way experience everything that we experience, including yeah. death. Yeah. And so, uh, and but he triumphed triumphed over it and leads us, like it says here, as he led captives free. You know, right. he freed us from that death with his victory. He really does hold the keys, like Revelation says, of death in the grave. That's right. Um, and he was proclaiming a victory. He was proclaiming a victory. It was not an offer of salvation. He was proclaiming a victory, which was hope for the righteous dead and judgment for the unrighteous dead. Right. I think we have to, again, really hit... There's nothing in Scripture that teaches of a post-death yeah. opportunity to be saved. There, n- not purgatory or any other terminology for purgatory where someone who has lived outside of, the f- of faith in Christ or, e- or before Christ was born, like Abraham and Noah, who they were, their righteousness was because of their faith, their belief in God. 
those who die without that are there is no second opportunity. There no there is nothing they can do. There's nothing that we as living believers can right. do to lift anybody out of condemnation. Yep. That's good. That's exactly right. Next question is what is worship? It's a short three word question. Well and let's we'll have to make this a compact answer. We <laughs> we spent a lot of time on that first one. First thing I would want folks to understand is that we all worship. That's mm-hmm. because I, I like the questioners the, the way this person asked the question, what is worship? And and I think the first thing we need to understand is that everyone worships. Mm-hmm. Lost people, people who say, Oh, I've never been to church in my life, they worship. And so let's then figure out then, so then what is worship? I'd say that worship, the 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 idea of worship is to give honor and glory to someone or something. And so I, I completely agree with you, Doug, on that. Everybody is going to worship someone or something. You may worship your family. You may worship your job. You may worship your health. I think there are people who who make an idol out of their own physical well-being. And, uh, and, and so those things, you, you may not call it worship, but the attitude you have towards it, the importance that you give to it, the the amount of time you think about it, those are all elements of, of worship. Mm-hmm. And so we have to recognize that everybody is going to worship someone or something. The scriptures call us to worship God and God alone. And if you're worshiping, if you're giving that much time, energy, effort, focus to something above more than you're giving it to God, then that's, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so then thinking through, okay, well then what is Christian worship? To me, it seems like one of the most simple definitions of Christian worship is revelation and response. Um, God revealing himself and the truth and us responding to him and responding to the truth. And, and I mean, I, I, I think you, you can't have Christian worship without either of those two things. Revel, you can't have Christian worship without him revealing, and you can't have Christian worship without a response on our part. Like for us just to grow in knowledge is not worship, mm-hmm. uh, but for us to respond in some way that, okay, now we're talking about worship. And what's interesting and pretty neat to me is that as we look in different passages of Scripture, like Colossians 3, we see that whatever you do in word or deed is can be an act of worship. So we're talking about thing, words that come out of our mouth, actual deeds that we do with our with our bodies and with our hands and with our yeah with our abilities. Um, those can be acts of worship. Psalm 95 talks about bowing down and kneeling in acts of worship, and then. Romans 12, 1 says, uh, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices is an act of worship worship. and is actually our, our expected act of worship. So all these things show that, that our response can include something like singing, but for us to think of Christian worship only as singing is just not a biblical idea. It totally can include singing but it's not limited to that. Yeah, and boy, I, Daniel, I think that's so good because the acts of our hands, 
man, that's exactly right. And I think what I would add to that, as long as we understand that even the acts of our hands, it has to originate in the heart. Mm -hmm. It is the heart's response because God is looking at the heart. That's why he would say to the Pharisees, when you do your acts of worship, yeah, you're, you're standing it, but it's not your, your heart's far from me. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's always make sure that it is the heart's response to and the that, greatness, to the revelation, the greatness of God. Exactly. Which, one last thing I'll comment on, and that is the fact that worship is something God defines. God tells us how we are to worship. And I think that's important because we can sometimes, as Christians, get to where we think we get to tell God what's the best way for us to worship. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't get that prerogative that's god's prerogative and so and so uh, i'll jump up on my soapbox here when when, <laughs> here, when let me let me move yeah, a few things you, out of the way so i'll get this. thank you thank yeah, you thank good. you uh when when god tells us that we are to worship constantly and like you said mm-hmm. and, and word and deed everything we do do it for his glory which is giving him glory mm-hmm. okay but like on the lord's day he, he gives us some real clear biblical guidelines of what it means to worship. It, we're supposed to have a Sabbath, a day that's holy to him, that we set apart for him. We're supposed to have on that day a day when we don't do certain other, other activities. He tells us that this is a day when we are to gather together for, for our own edification and for the edification of, of others when the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be together. So the idea that we get to say, well, I don't, I don't need the church to worship. I can worship out on the lake. I can worship, worship, uh, while I'm, you know, fishing or while I'm out, uh, you know, running, you know, riding my ATV, whatever, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a human idea, but it's not what the Bible tells us we're supposed to be doing as an act of worship on the Lord's day. It's certainly not to be in the place of exactly. That, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. that's, that can be an addition. If, right. if boy, you're standing and lo- looking at creation and you're understanding what a great God we have and you're worshiping him in that moment. Absolutely. That worship is taking place, but it just needs to be, make sure we understand that's in addition to, and not in place of yeah. a gathering together. The that's idea good. of worship is telling God you are the most important thing in all the world to me. And if I'm, have to be disobedient to do that, those those conflict. That's the opposite of worship. Can I add one more thing, Dan? And John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's good. And I will always use that as a great way to define worship. I know I've worshiped if God has increased in my heart, in my mind, in my understanding, if he has been exalted, I understand how much greater he is. And at the same time, I decrease. I come out of a, a worship experience understanding even more how much I need him. Mm-hmm. True worship has taken place. It's not a matter of did I get dressed up and sit in a pew. Right. That's not what Christian worship is. But instead, he has increased and I've decreased. Mm. That's good. That's really good. Helpful. Last question. I am battling an addiction to pornography. How can the Bible help me? Well, I'm so thankful that this questioner has has said something that that'll 
a lot of us, if not all of us, first of all, all of us do struggle mm-hmm. with whether not it's life. For, that's exactly right, Daniel. And so, man, thank you because um, we are to confess our sins to one another. Most of all, we, we confess our, our sins to God. And I'm so thankful this individual is willing to say, man, this is an area I need someone to help me with because we all need help in that area. And the Bible, man, it does offer help. First of all, it gives me the hope of remembering that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world and that God can, there is the resurrection power of Christ in me that gives me hope that this does not have to keep me enslaved in bondage. Yeah. Um, another way I think the Bible helps us is hope for a renewed mind. Like that that's an, that actually is an, a possibility that even though there's, you know, so there, we may have created such habits in our minds and, and our thought patterns that it just feels like a cage that we could never escape from. Scripture tells us, again, back to Romans 12, 2, 1 and 2, that, nope, we can have a renewed mind. We can have a new way of thinking and new th- patterns of thought. And it's interesting to me, which we don't have time for, but, I mean, science and research has only confirmed that, but the Bible has been saying that all along. Um, so there's hope that that is a possibility. And healing, Daniel, yeah. repair uh, in in the the minor prophet Joel, God gave back the, he says, I will give back the years that the locust ate. And I really do believe that that renewed mind, God can heal uh, the damage that is done by pornography. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. And I think one other way scripture can help us with this is realize that God doesn't leave sensuality and sexuality as a big void, a big gap that we're supposed to fill in. Yeah. He, there's a, there are just tons of things in Scripture that teach us healthy sexuality. Yeah. And actually, because it's the way God designed it and the way God gives it to us, it's the most fulfilling sexuality. Uh, and so, you know, by l- l- the reader asked or the questioner asked about how does the Bible help? Well, one of the ways is to, to don't be afraid of sexuality. It's a gift that God gives mm-hmm. us. But like anything else, you know, Hunger, God gave us an appetite, mm-hmm. and, but we can abuse food. Yeah. You know, God gave us the ability to work and earn an income, but we can abuse that and it becomes greed. The same way with sexuality. We can start to abuse it or use it in wrong ways and it becomes pornographic. It becomes a, a vice. Yeah. But scripture teaches us the proper way to relate to one another as man and woman or husband and wife. And, and when we're able to live that way, we're, we know we're staying within God's guidelines, and that's where we ultimately find joy and fulfillment. Yeah. gives us The Bible gives us a better story mm-hmm. uh, for sexuality to fit into, where we actually, kind of like we mentioned earlier with worship, we get to worship the giver and not the gift. Right. Um, it is a gift. He told us how it's meant to be used, but we worship the giver, not the gift. Um, and it, this gift comes with purpose and it's not merely self-centered gratification. It's, it's actually self-giving purpose, uh, with, with marital pleasure, with, uh, family procreation. It's a gift with purpose, not just self-centered gratification. And that's a better story. That's right. Um, that's, that's a better story for us to fit into. That's a, that's the meaningful story that mm-hmm. we were created for. 
Um, that's right. Man, that's good. That and good. and guys, I would say the scripture also can help us by giving us the pattern of it's not just turning from something, but also turning to. Uh, a lot of times whenever we're struggling with whatever the addiction is, and in this case, pornography, that we say, man, I, I need to stop. I need to stop, which is right. I do need to stop. But that means I've also then got to turn to, mm-hmm. because if I'm not filling that void, if I'm not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, if I'm not as the deer panteth for the uh, water, so my soul longeth after thee. If we're not filling our mind and our eyes with the things of God, if we're not setting our minds on things above, then we we're, we've just stopped, but we haven't turned to. We've turned from, but we haven't turned to. Yeah, yeah. Along those lines, Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians four gives us okay. What do we soak our minds in? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure lovely, commendable. These are the things to soak our minds in. So, so exactly what you're saying. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Right. By living according to your word. And then it goes on, thy word have I hid in my heart. Reading the Bible, filling your minds with that, your eyes with that, and your mind, mm-hmm. me- memorizing it, meditating. So when those temptations come, we have the word of God that can redirect our mind at that moment. It's good. good. So good. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy Johnson, for producing this podcast like a pro. Uh, remember, you guys that listen, we want to say thank you to you for making time, and we definitely hope it's helpful. And if it is, remember you can subscribe to it, or you can rate it, or you can share it with someone else, and that might help help them too. And until next time, remember The God of the Bible is never surprised or offended by our honest questions.